There was a sermon I was going to do today that was finishing up the Rise Above series that we have been doing for the last several uh, weeks. And um, preacher called an audible today. Uh, and, and, and there are some things that I, I want you to be aware of dealing with um, our history. So, so to a large extent, I'm going to give a history lesson. Why is a preacher going to give us a history lesson? Because I doubt you are going to be given this information anywhere else. So there is a point where if we're going to be talking about God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and that move within our country, it helps us, it behooves us to know some facts of where we came from. Especially in a day and age when people are wanting to rewrite history. Everything I'm going to give you today, you can look up and you can verify it. So, I'm not going to speak out of turn and I will tell you, I'm not going to be thumping the Bible today. Okay? You guys know I stay in the scripture all the time. But just because I'm not going to be reading scripture doesn't mean there's not scripture interwoven with what I'm going to present today. And we are going to be talking clearly about God. We're going to be talking the God of the Bible. We're going to be talking clearly about his son, Jesus Christ. And I hope that with what you hear today, you are going to be encouraged at least as far as the beginnings of our nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know where that comes from, don't you? You've heard that before. Say yes. Yes, Yes. good. These are perhaps the most famous words written in the Declaration of Independence, which was accepted in its final form by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. When this was read in that day and time in public readings throughout the colonies, it was met with roaring cheers and the peal of church bells. The first Independence Day celebration was the following year. And by the 1800s, it became pretty much the practice, the tradition to celebrate this day with parades and picnics and fireworks. Okay, show of hands, who's planning on going to see a parade tomorrow? Who's going to watch one on TV? Just a few of you, right? Okay. Who's going to have a picnic? Can I say watermelon, hot dogs, apple pie, Chevrolet? Okay. Okay, a few of you. How many of you, and I know you can answer this one, how many of you have been hearing the fireworks going off for the last three nights? Yes. Okay. So we're still doing this. Yes? Yeah. Though we celebrate, let's not, let us also remember 
But our founding fathers paid a great price. Okay, Eric, get with the program. There we go. Let's remember that our founding fathers paid a great price in order to establish our homeland. Kenneth Dodge, writing in Resource Magazine, says this. 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and for their families. Of the 56 men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost sons in the war. And another had two sons that were captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from the wounds of their hardship in the war. It is an understatement to say they put everything on the line. And because of their bravery and their faith, we live in a country that's relatively free. Now hold on a second, Eric. Did you say faith? Yes, I did. Some say that our founding fathers were atheists or deists, which is almost the same thing. 52 of the 56 signers were practicing Christians. And several of them were ordained, seminary-trained ministers. The Declaration mentions God of the Bible Several times, calling him God, creator, divine providence, and the supreme judge of the world, all referring to the God of the Bible. Now, didn't these men know how offensive they sounded to the atheist and the, the agnostics when they referred to the creator? Didn't they realize that the words right and life might get convoluted to right for life? The question I want to pose to you this morning is simple yet crucial. Is America supposed to be a Christian nation? I think it is wise for us to listen to those who founded and who developed this nation. President Woodrow Wilson said, A nation that does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today nor what it is trying to do. We are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we've been about. Let's go back to Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus is credited with the discovery of the Americas. While he was seeking a better trade route to India, but secular school history books leave out some important details about how he came to do that. 
Christopher Columbus' son wrote a biography of his father, and in it he said he never heard his father swear, and that his father hated blasphemy. Columbus himself said that he embarked on the journey primarily because of the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he wrote this, I prayed to the most merciful Lord about my heart's great desire, and he gave me spirit and intelligence for the task. It was the Lord who put it in my mind that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of the project rejected it with laughter. But there was no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus desired to perform a very obvious miracle through this voyage to the Indies. I am an unworthy sinner. But I have cried out to the Lord of grace and mercy, and he has covered me completely. The fact that the gospel must still be preached to so many lands in such a short time, that's what convinces me. And on August 3rd, 1492... After taking communion and praying for God's blessing, he ordered the sails set in the name of Jesus and began the voyage. Weeks later, they landed on an island, which would be named San Salvador, our Savior. On every island that they came to, Columbus ordered that a great wooden cross be erected, and he said that he came in order to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the heathen. In 1620, before setting foot on what we now call Plymouth, Massachusetts, the 102 settlers above the Mayflower signed a covenant called the Mayflower Compact. The first paragraph reads this way, which I understand English back then and English now is different, but let me read it for you, okay? In the name of God, amen. We, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland King, defender of the faith, etc. That's actually there have undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. 1643, the New England Confederation was written, which is the first effort towards a joint government within the U.S. It reads, in part, Whereas we all came into these parts of America with, the, with one and the same and and aim, namely 
to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and in peace. And then it goes on from there. Did you know that the Constitution of all 50 states in their original forms all contain statements of faith recognizing the dependence on Almighty God? Some of the early states even required belief in Jesus Christ in order to hold public office. Listen to this from the Constitution of the State of Delaware, Article 22 of 1776. This is it. Again, I know it's hard to read. Let me read it for you. Every person who should be chosen a member of either house appointed to any office or place of trust shall subscribe to the following declaration. I do profess faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ, his only Son, and the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forever. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. That, from the state of Delaware. I could read the others, but we don't have time for that. 1683, 90 years before the Revolutionary War, King Charles II declared that the colonies of Massachusetts were too independent, so he sent word that they were to swear allegiance to the crown and to the Church of England, or they would lose their charter. Increase Mather, then President of Harvard spoke at a gathering in Boston where he said, If we submit to the king's requirement to be submissive to the Church of England again, we will betray everything our forefathers came to America for and we will be sinning against God. I say, let's put our lives in the hands of God and who knows? What he may do for us. The vote was unanimous not to submit to the king's decree, and other colonies along the eastern seaboard followed suit. King Charles II was outraged and decided to send Colonel Percy Kirk. Are you aware of him? He's the one known to history as Bloody. Kirk, and several thousand troops to America to squelch the rising rebellion. Now, I said that softly. What's about to happen? It's war. Increase Mather heard of this, and he sequestered himself in his study and spent the entire day on his knees fasting And praying for the colonies. He said at the end of the day that he just felt his burden was lifted. I don't have this written down, but are burdens lifted at Calvary? Yes or yes? Has your burden been lifted by Calvary? 
Okay. Increased Mather just felt that God was going to take care of them. Now, in those days, news traveled very slowly. We, you know, no internet, no, no telephone even, no radio. I mean, we're talking horse and buggy or taking a ship, and it takes a long time for news to travel. So it was weeks before the news came that King Charles II had died suddenly of a stroke and that bloody Kirk was not coming. The day that King Charles died was the very day that Mather spent in fasting and in prayer. In the mid-1700s, King George III began to tighten the screws of oppression on the colonies again. In response, the men of the city of Marlborough proclaimed unanimously, death is preferable to slavery. A freeborn people are not required by the religion of Jesus Christ to submit to tyranny. One governor wrote the Board of Trade in Great Britain and said, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you that he has none but Jesus Christ. And revolution, as the cry went up and down the colonies, one of those things that became a motto was no king but King Jesus. No king but King Jesus. On March 23rd, 1773, the Virginia Provincial Convention met in order to debate Patrick Henry's resolution that Virginia organize a militia and make preparations for the coming conflict with England. You have heard that he said, give me liberty or give me what? You've heard that, right? Give me liberty or give me death. But those who seek to revise history are not interested in you understanding the context in which Patrick Henry said those famous words. Let me read it for you. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left for us. We are not weak if we make proper use of the forces that God has placed in our powers. Besides, sir, we do not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations. It is no longer time to extenuate the matter. Is life so dear or peace so sweet to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not the course that others may take, but as for me, give me liberty 
or give me death. Patrick Henry's emotional speech set the colonies on fire for independence. May 17th, 1776. The Continental Congress set aside a day of fasting and prayer for they knew that if the new nation prepared itself for war, they needed to first be spiritually prepared. And on July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress met again in order to affix their names on the Declaration of Independence. So I'm I'm back to my question. Is America supposed to be a Christian nation? Our founding fathers gave God the glory for the birth of this nation. George Washington openly acknowledged that without providential help, General Cornwallis's forces would not have gotten split up at Valley Forge and thereby forcing Cornwallis to surrender and thus ending the war. On November 15, 1781, Washington wrote to Thomas McKean, a name you may or may not have heard. Thomas McKean was the president of the Continental Congress. And in that letter, Washington said, I take particular pleasure in acknowledging that the interposing hand of heaven has been most conspicuous and remarkable. Who does George Washington say the credit for winning independence from England goes to? Who does it go to? In 1787, the Constitutional Convention had been meeting for 116 days, deliberating in their attempts to forge the Constitution. The meeting seemed hopelessly deadlocked. And Benjamin Franklin rose and he spoke these words. I've lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth. God governs in the affairs of men, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without God noticing, is it possible for a nation to rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. I believe that, and I move that prayers employing the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed with business. They agreed and even recessed for that day so they could all go to church and spend time in fasting and in prayer. 
when they reconvened, a whole new mood filled the hall and they were able to agree on the tenets of the Constitution. After approval of the Constitution, they voted Reverend William Lynn in as the first chaplain and charged him with opening each session of Congress with prayer. You know this guy, you've probably seen his picture, Thomas Jefferson. If you haven't, pull out some coins. Thomas Jefferson was one of the framers of the Constitution and the one who coined the phrase separation of church and state, which, by the way, does not appear in the Constitution. Jefferson wrote that phrase in a private letter to an individual who was concerned that the government might one day try to control the churches. Jefferson's letter was to assure him that it would not. While president, Jefferson was also the superintendent of schools in Washington, D.C. As such, he mandated that there were to be two books used in every classroom. The Bible and Watts hymnal. Now, if the person who wrote the First Amendment also mandated the use of the Bible in the classroom, it is certainly inconsistent for the Supreme Court to say that the use of the Bible in school is illegal. That was clearly never the intent of the framers of the Constitution. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, said, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. From the day of the Declaration, the American people were bound by the laws of God, which they all, and by laws which they nearly all, acknowledged as the rules of conduct. Is America supposed to be a Christian nation? John Quincy Adams says it is. Samuel Adams, a signer of the Declaration of uh, Independence, in his last will and testament, started that piece by saying this, First of all, I rely on the merits of Jesus Christ for my pardon and for my sins. James Madison, an architect of the Constitution and our fourth president, said, The belief in God, all-powerful, wise, and good, is so essential to the moral order of the world and to the happiness of man that arguments which enforce it could not be drawn from too many sources. George Washington, first inaugural address. The smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order 
and the right which heaven itself has ordained. Jedediah Morris. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present form of republican government and all blessing which flows from it must fall. John Adams, our second president. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. In other words, you hear what he's saying? For, for our democracy to work, according to John Adams, we must be a moral and a religious people. Otherwise, our government will go away. It'll fall apart. William Penn. If we are not governed by God, we will be ruled by tyrants. Patrick Henry. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Witherspoon, a signer of the Constitution. Whoever is the enemy of God, I do not hesitate to call the enemy of America. John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. It is the duty as well as the privilege of a Christian nation to select and to prefer Christians for their rulers. Daniel J. Webster, statesman, uh, part of the House of Representatives for New Hampshire. Whatever it is that makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. And I ask, is America supposed to be a Christian nation? Our founding fathers sought to establish a home for their families and for their descendants where God was honored, that the people would be governed by Christian ideals that play out in civil government, and all people would be respected. 246 years have passed since the Declaration of Independence was signed. Our nation is engaged in a battle for freedom once again. In fact, I would dare to say we have been engaged in that battle ever since the country was established. But right now, it's happening in our schools. It's happening in our courtrooms. It's happening in our city streets. It's even happening in our churches. And it is a fight for survival. And our forefathers saw that this day would come. Our forefathers recognized 
that our form of government only works when, as President John Adams put it, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Now, I hope I've inundated you with enough that you're going, whoa, I can't remember all of that because I want you to realize the evidence is there if you will just go look for it. Don't let other people interpret history. Do your own research. Don't let me tell you what the Bible says. When I present you something, you do your own research. I'm fallible. I could be wrong. Make certain you go back to the source. I can't exactly tell you how to combat the moral decay that's in our society in the very few moments that we have here this morning. I can remind you that Jesus died for every soul that has ever been or ever will be created that he loves each soul that he created equally, that we are not perfect, we're just blessed through the blood of the cross. And if it were not for Christ dying for our sin, we're just as lost as anyone else. I can also remind you that it is our privilege to influence others to move them toward Christ. We may not affect the course of our nation, yet, my siblings, we can affect every life that the Lord puts in our path. We can influence them towards truth. We can help change eternity. I can also remind you what Ben Franklin said. Christians praying for their nation and imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing is a great place to start. In fact, it's biblical. As we see the wicked of our society flourish, we should be reminded of the words that God spoke to the nation of Israel as they were forming their government. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Yes, that was spoken to the nation of Israel. I still believe that principle holds for any nation that would seek after God. I am proud to be an American. I am proud that our country has a God-honoring heritage. Our land needs healing, not of the body, but of the soul. People of God, stand with me and join me as we pray for our nation.
And I challenge you this morning to turn your hearts towards him. Ask for his forgiveness and seek his face. Stand with me if you would, please. Father God, we come before you. Inspired by those who came and established this country. Not perfect men or perfect women. But sinful men who were trying to do the best they knew. And Father, we are not perfect men or women either. We are sinful. And we're just trying to do the best we know to do. Father, we know that the the charge to the church, to your body, is to tell people of good news that goes beyond the things that they see happening in the world around them. To tell them that there is a different way of life. That there is hope. That there is freedom in Christ Jesus. That the blood of the cross can cover our sin. And not only give us the hope of eternal life in heaven. But can make us the kingdom of God now. As we see his spirit, your spirit. Work through your people. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for those who are in government. Who have a task that none of us really truly understand even though we are fast to criticize. We can't possibly know the weight of the decisions that are made. But we pray, Father, for your guiding hand, for your guiding spirit. We pray for the families of the men and women that are involved in making those decisions in our government every day from from the, the president all the way down to the mayors and the others in the cities and towns, all of the government. Yes. We pray, Father, for you to make yourself evident. We pray, Father, for your guidance. And we pray, Father, for your forgiveness. Forgiveness when we have done clear wrong and when we have just been arrogant about what we think we know. We pray, Father, that you will continue to guide our hearts. That you will break us for the lost and the hurting of this community, of this state, of this world. May we, Father, influence others for you every time we speak, every time we look at someone, every time we seek to do business, or we seek to comfort. May we always be your mouthpiece, giving your truth, giving your love, giving your mercy and your grace. 
may we always remember that each of us individually still need that love, mercy, and grace. We pray, Father, that you keep your hand on our country and that you work through your body to help people see the truth. And we say these things in Jesus' name.